Almost everything that you want in life comes through other people, through interacting with other people. And he reasoned that if I'm so bad at this, I better make it my life's work to get better at it. You want to transform yourself and improve your life. You long to help people. You wish to become healthier, happier, and more successful. This show is your opportunity to learn how to use hypnosis to make your life better. Each week, hypnotist Robbie Spear-Miller interviews people who have already changed their lives in amazing ways with hypnosis. These models can help you discover your path to making the most of your life. If you want to learn how hypnosis can help you reach your goals, this show is for you. Welcome, everybody. I'm Robbie Spear-Miller, the host of the Hypnosis Show podcast, and today I'm really excited to welcome an amazing, accomplished woman named Mitzi Perdue. She's a businesswoman and author, and she's the founder of Win This Fight, Stop Human Trafficking Now. She's also done lots of other really cool things, and she, she is the daughter of the man who started the Sheraton Hotel chain, and also the wife of the man who started Purdue Chickens. And so she's going to share with us all of her experiences and wisdom about overcoming challenges in life so that we can use all of that to help ourselves grow with hypnosis. Welcome, Mitzi. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And I love the premise of your show. I mean, my wish for everybody is that they get to be all that they can be. And I really think that self-talk plays a huge role in that. Yes, yeah. How we frame things, how we interact with our challenges, it makes all the difference in terms of what we do next. So I, I know you have so many great stories about that. So why don't you start by telling us, like, what's your favorite example of overcoming challenges? Well, I think my father has to be the biggest example I'll ever come across because my father's name was Ernest Henderson. He was the co-founder, along with my uncle, of the whole Sheraton Hotel chain. started in the 1930s, and at the time of his death, the family owned 400 hotels. Mm -hmm. uh, we did sell the company on his death, so I'm no longer closely associated with it. But here's why I think his story, you know, it's the rest of the story. Father, when he was 26 years old, he had just gotten engaged to my mother, who was a beautiful Southern Belle. He was from Boston. And he brought his beautiful Southern Belle home to meet his mother. And his mother told my mother, don't marry Ernest. He can never stick with anything. You'll end up poor. And mother said, oh, I love him. I don't care. And so they did marry but this was what a wake-up call for a young man to have his own mother tell his beloved future wife, don't marry because he'll never stick to anything. Well, so that was a wake-up call. He decided, boy, I better do something about this. And he picked out of the, like, whatever was the equivalent of the yellow pages, and I think we're talking 1923 now, he found a firm that's still active today. It's called Johnson O'Connor. Johnson O'Connor was a career guidance counselor. So father comes in and goes through a whole day's worth of tests, trying to find out you know, why he could never stick to anything, why, why his own mother had said, you're going to end up poor. Well, Johnson O'Connor told him, Mr. Anderson, you have the worst human relations skills I've ever come across. He said, oh, 
I think that you can make a go of it, but you've got to take into account the fact that uh, you just don't understand other people. You don't know what makes them tick. You don't know what to say. Uh, I think because you're a smart fellow and he was an MIT graduate, uh, I think that you could make a career for yourself in a laboratory where you didn't have to interact with anybody and you could go off and make smart inventions or something. Well, father heard this and, you know, it's, it's echoed down the generations, the story that, that father had the worst human relations skills that, that this guy had ever come across. Father could have decided, okay, that's my fate. I'll, I'll work in a laboratory. But instead he took it as a challenge. And he told me this, he said, almost everything that you want in life comes through other people, through interacting with other people. And he reasoned that if I'm so bad at this, I better make it my life's work to get better at it. And he began like reading psychology books, taking courses. He, t- he did things like, he thought that if, if, you, if you know salesmanship, you probably have to know an awful lot about what motivates people. So he took salesmanship courses. He took public speaking courses. He, he later on in life made it a point to make friends with some of the top psychologists and psychiatrists in the country. He told me that the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, told me he read that cover to cover every 10 years. And at the end, this man who had the worst human relations skills that uh, somebody had ever come across, he, he got into the hospitality industry, which you would think would be the absolute worst thing for somebody with that handicap. And he became so good at it that I have sometimes tried to imagine who other than a national politician interacts with more people than a host who welcomes the traveling public in 400 different hotels. I mean, he became an, his, his absolutely biggest, I think we could call it a handicap, his biggest handicap became his greatest asset because I think by the end he knew more than almost, well, certainly more than the average person would about what makes people tick, what motivates them, what they care about. Uh, I mean, he just learned. And I thought it was so cool that, that he overcame a huge deficit to have really extraordinary success. And I'm ready to bet that he wouldn't have had the success in the hospitality industry if he hadn't put so much effort into learning how to get along with people. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And it shows you how really anything is learnable if you're willing to put in the effort and and find the resources and rehearse what you're learning. And that when you're motivated like that, you can make it even better. I bet that part of your your father's success was also that he loved a challenge. So he he brought brought that attitude to everything he did. Yeah, I mean, it would have been so easy to just be discouraged. Oh, I'm no good. But instead, I mean, he pretty much made up his mind he was going to excel at it. And allow me to tell a quick story of, of how he put this into effect and how it made his hotels a success when everybody else was going bankrupt. Yeah, go for it. Okay, he... He bought the first hotel in 1933. This is at the height of the Great Depression. And he told me that with the money, he was able to turn things around. And with the money that he made from one successful hotel, he bought two. And with the money from those, he bought four until at the time of his death, 400. Well, so I asked him, 
how could you turn things around when nobody else could? I mean, it was kind of known at the height of the Great Depression that that hotels were a one-way ticket to bankruptcy. Everybody was losing money. How could how could you make money? And he had he had a number of answers for this, but the one that sticks in my mind most was he said when he first took over a hotel, he'd invite all the people who worked for the hotel and yeah, there could be 400 people, 800 people, and he'd invite them all into the hotel's ballroom. And he told me that he knew that every person there was afraid they were going to lose their job. And when you lose your job during the Great Depression, you probably aren't going to get another 25% unemployment. I mean, it meant red lines. Well, so Father, knowing that he was addressing you know, some very tense, nervous, unhappy people, all worrying about keeping their jobs, first words out of his mouth were, I want every one of you to keep your job. And the reason I want you to keep your job is, I know that you know your job better than anybody else in the world. And my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you'll see in a few months, this is going to be the best served, most popular most financially stable hotel in the whole city. And we're going to be an example to everybody else. Yeah, that's amazing. So he really made this amazing connection with people and inspired them to do the best they could. Yeah, but then he told me that those were just words and they count, but they're not enough. So he said the next day after he'd taken possession of a hotel, he would have all sorts of like, I don't know, plumbers, decorators, just people who were there refurbishing the hotel. But he said the first money he ever spent would be in the areas that the public would never see, like the employee dining rooms, kitchens, showers, repeat old elevators, dingy corridors. He'd spruce all of that up. And so I asked him, oh, why wouldn't you put money first where the paying public would see and where you'd get your money back? And he said... This was a powerful way of communicating to the people who were working for Sheraton. It's a powerful way of communicating how important they were if you spend the first money on them. He said people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Mm -hmm. And he was right. Yeah, clearly he was. And he inspired this amazing loyalty in these people. Yeah, and he used to say that, uh, well, his mantra was inspire, don't require. And he said, the thing is, you know, you can, you can threaten people and say, shape up or you're fired. And that's a bad approach in his view because they're going to do the least they can do to get by with. They'll be resentful. You can try bribery as in paying them more or saying there's a bonus if you do a great job. But he said, the problem with that is people work for the bribe. But instead, if you give them, well, a... Another quote, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. So he said, you know, a person, maybe some maid cleaning rooms or a bartender tending bar, uh, they can think of themselves as I'm a maid or I'm a bartender or I'm a bellman. I'm the person behind the front desk. They can think oh, that's my job or they can think we're part of a team. It's going to be an inspiration to the rest of the whole city. And together, we're going to accomplish this. We're a team. There's camaraderie. And you know, he was very big on tapping camaraderie and teamwork. And the inspiration for this mission. 
Yeah, but I don't think any of this came naturally. I think it came because he put so much effort into trying to figure out what motivates people. And, you know, he, he, with that effort that he put into learning what motivates people, it did make him, you know, spectacularly successful because as far as I know, his competitors weren't doing that. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting about the story for people is that that people in the world generally probably don't have bosses or people in leadership roles in their life who are doing things like this to inspire them. So as people, as our listeners are hearing this story, you want to ask yourself, what can you change in your own life so that you're showing yourself that you matter and you're on a mission and that there, there's uh, some loyalty to yourself and what you're building in your life? Well, I'm a big believer that loyalty goes both ways. And Father just demonstrated in every possible way he could that he had a lot of loyalty to them. You know, I believe in you. I know that you know your job better than anybody else in the world. Uh, you know, that, that's just got to be a nice message for somebody, especially somebody who's scared that they were going to lose their job. For sure. Yeah, it was such a, a, a total opposite of what they were expecting. So the emotional response, you know, in hypnosis, we talk about how when you're, if somebody's really fearful, then, and then they do some hypnosis, the, their response to hypnosis tends to be even deeper because of the, the, the distance between their first emotion and then relaxing and letting go. And so you see how emotionally their expectations were totally different from what happened. And it's such a wonderful, powerful way. I mean, wasn't he almost using some of the techniques of hypnosis, you know, sort of painting a picture, allowing them to feel? For sure. Yeah. Well, everything people do starts with emotion. We all think that we're rational beings, but that emotion is what drives everything. And then we rationalize it after the fact. And so he understood people. He knew how to paint this picture for people and to to bring it to life. And he showed them, didn't just use words, but he was showing them a reality that would help them. So yes. Yeah, and then and then you know it happened. If if Golly, this, I've never thought of it in terms of suggestibility, but his, his painting this picture of we're going to be an inspiration to the rest of the city will show everybody that things can, that terrible as things are, they can turn around. That, I mean, wasn't he just delivering suggestions and then they became true? Because the, the hotels did become a huge success and they were an inspiration to the rest of the city in in every case. Yeah, so they he decided what the outcome was going to be. He painted a picture of it for everybody and he got them to connect to it and I bet after that experience their sense of loyalty to him was huge because they felt like he had saved them, right? That they were, you know, at huge risk in that situation and and most people never forget something like that. It stays with you. Yeah, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And, you know, Father was showing them, I care about you. Because, you know, it would be so easy, in fact, I bet it happened all the time, for a new owner to get rid of the old people and bring and take care of his friends. Uh, Father never did that. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, his, his premise was that, uh, that the people there give them a chance to show how good they are. Right. But I thought my, my late husband was at least as brilliant in human relations as my late father. Uh, and th- there was one thing where, where 
I played in, I didn't play a huge role in, I didn't play any role at all for that matter in running Purdue. Uh, there, when, when Frank and I married, there were 16,000 people. And I don't know how to run a plant. I can't advise somebody in auditing or accounting or whatever. But having grown up in the hospitality industry, there was something that I could contribute. And Frank and I got married really quite rapidly after meeting. When we actually did marry, we knew each other in person six weeks and three days. So, <laughs> but um, but we had I would I had I'd been living in California. He was Maryland and. We met in March and married in July, but the reason we didn't see each other a lot in between was because uh, we could talk for a couple of hours by telephone every night. And I think you can get to know a person really, really well uh, when you're talking by phone. And we, we had a promise to each other that would tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so when we actually did marry and were living together, I felt there was no adjustment period except... Except, right at the beginning, I told Frank, I think we should entertain every single person who works for the company. And he said, you know, that's not realistic. There's 16,000 people. And I said, I bet we could have them 100 at a time. And he said, no, that's way too many. And I, I was sort of pretending that I wasn't processing the fact that he wasn't agreeing with this. And I said... I bet we could put it together in six weeks. No, that's way too soon. And you know, we went round and round with me sort of pretending I didn't know that he was saying no. But as we went round and round, uh, gradually he started to, you know, take it seriously. And then finally he said, I like it. Six weeks later, that plus he was August by the end of September, uh, we began inviting people a hundred at a time from every part of the company. And the goal was to entertain every single one of them. But the company kept growing. There were 20,000 by the time of his passing. But, but we did. And here's what Frank did that, that I thought was just superb. Frank acted on a saying that comes from William James, a psychiatrist from 120 years ago. And William James said, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And so the reason that Frank was willing to have 100 people at a time, three times a month uh, in our home for dinner, it was a buffet dinner, was because it was a way of showing appreciation for people. Mm. And you know, I wonder if any, if any other Fortune 500 size company has a boss or an owner who will just invite you know, truckers, veterinarians, accountants, administrative assistants, everybody. Uh, you know, whoever you were, you were going to get an invitation to Frank's for dinner. And at these dinners, you know, Frank would pay attention to each person. And then uh, at the end of the evening, he'd invite them to ask questions about how the company was doing or even about their own particular situation. And I thought that that showed a huge amount of understanding of human nature, that when people can get the word about their company from the man whose name appears on their paycheck, uh, you know, it's 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 a whole different level of engagement. And then at the end of every evening, in in different words, he'd he'd look out of his audience of a hundred people, and he'd say, "I know the company isn't wouldn't be what it is today if it weren't for you. Thank you." 
And, you know, again, what does it mean if you're, you know, five, six, eight layers down in a great big company and the boss invites you over for dinner and thanks you? Yeah, amazing. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world because he, he really liked people too. You know, one of the things that he did, he knew a phenomenal number of names. I mean, I'm going to guess it's thousands because we could go into a plant and I got, I got to accompany him fairly often. And, you know, the number of names, say it's a plant with a thousand. He could, he, I, I, I bet he introduced me to 200 people by name and probably could have done more if we'd been there longer. Uh, and and he'd, he wouldn't just know their name. He'd say, Maisie, uh, Mitzi, I'd like you to meet Maisie. Maisie's son just got into college. Or, or meet Darnell. Uh, Darnell's been with us 30 years and he's never had a sick day. And I mean, he's just, what must it mean if you're a worker on like a factory and the big boss knows your name and knows something about you? And I always used to be amazed, or not really amazed, but how about deeply impressed that, you know, Frank is the owner and we go through. And I think it would have been so possible for him to walk along with his nose in the air, you know, I'm Mr. Big. But I always felt that his body language was more, yeah, we're a team. And I respect your role in this very, very much. It wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm big and important. No, I've got all the respect in the world for what you're doing. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like he really epitomized the idea of servant leadership, where his role as a leader was to help the other people do their best and shine and discover what they're capable of. And I can remember, you know, something that would happen. We, we have celebrations when, when a plant has gone, oh, I, I, I may not have the figures right, but directionally I'm right. Supposing they've had a million man hours without an accident. And maybe, maybe the number isn't that big, but directionally, I'm, I'm certain of this. So there's a celebration. There have been so many man hours with, or woman hours, people hours, without, without an, an accident. But supposing that, that the plant uh, you know, is operating around the clock and the celebration for one shift is like at three in the morning. And Frank, had to, be, to attend it, has to drive like 10 hours round trip, five hours there, five hours back, regularly do it. Because, and, you know, I'd say, Frank, you know, you're, you're 78. You, you could just sleep through the night and not do this. And Frank said, no, I know it would mean something them to them. You know, this is a big event and uh, it would mean something to them if, if I show up for it. And he would. Yeah. He was very focused on what, what, they needed and what they wanted and what it would matter to them. Or you know, another case where I saw him do that, there were, oh, this is, this has got to be maybe 25 years ago. So it's probably forgotten. Uh, I mean, if, if you're 60, you remember this, but here's the story. During the desert storm, there was a horrible moment where some of the prison guards, it was discovered that they were just totally mistreating prisoners. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yes. The MPs who, uh, they, they come, came from my area, or at least a lot of them did. And so maybe four or five people had really misbehaved, but that meant that something like 258 people were just, you know, they had gone to serve their country and now they're returning home in complete shame. I mean, it was, it was an awful moment. 
And if you've given two years of your life and, and what you're getting is shame, well, several of the people who actually there's like two and they weren't, they weren't, you know, the guilty people, they weren't the ones who had behaved badly. Uh, they were part of this group of MPs that were returning, but they were returning to, I guess it's Western Maryland. And to get there um, from Salisbury, it's like an eight hour drive. Frank and I, with him driving, went to welcome them home. And, yeah, you know, Frank, why are we doing this? And he said, because look what, look what they've given for this country uh, to have at least one civilian or two, actually, because it was me there, too, to have a couple of civilians who aren't related to them come and welcome them home and say, we appreciate what you do. That's going to mean something to them. Well, I've met several of the people who were part of that. And, you know, even 25 years later, they still say, you know, it just meant the whole world to us that, you know, we, we were afraid everybody hated us. And here's somebody who's a big, important person who's taking time out from his life to make a very long round trip drive just to be there for us. Yeah. Cool. Amazing. It is. It sounds like he had amazing perspective and he was able to identify where he could make the biggest impact and he was willing to just do it. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, the, what, what brought that particular story to mind is you said servant leadership. Well, that's servant leadership driving way out of your way for people who need some encouragement or some appreciation. For sure. Now, Frank was just a super great guy. I mean, it was a privilege of my life to to spend time with him. Amazing. So I would love to hear more about your own experiences, because I know when we were talking earlier, Mitzi, you mentioned you had your own challenges in your life. And I think sharing them will also help people know the, the whole conversation so far has really shown us the structure that your father and your husband used to inspire people to create something in the world. We often work with individuals who are wanting to change themselves so they can contribute to the world. And, and often where they get stuck is that they, they end up feeling fearful in themselves or self-conscious or they have certain rules that get in the way. And all of that can actually eclipse the bigger mission. So, so these stories we've heard so far show how important it is to see that bigger mission. And, and as you do, it can inspire you to go beyond what you thought you could do. Like, for example, if, if you're a parent, once you have a child, often most parents will say that it, it made them a better person because they, they all of a sudden they had somebody they were responsible for right? So it gets us out of our own selves. And I really believe that that everybody needs some kind of mission in their life. It doesn't have to be a child, um, but some kind of mission that, that kind of propels you forward, that inspires you to face your fears and overcome challenges because you know the mission is worth it. So I would love to hear what your stories are about how you did that in your own life. Okay. Uh, I had two things when I was... I must have been 38 that were life-changing for me. And they were both, they were kind of attitude things because at age 38, I was terribly, terribly shy. Uh, it was, it was genuinely hard for me to walk into a room of strangers. I mean, how about close to impossible? And if I had to make a phone call, like to my son's teacher, I could sit on the edge of the bed for half an hour thinking, uh, 
I can manage hello, but what if they ask something and I don't know the answer and they're going to think I'm stupid? And uh, so I was, I was paralyzingly shy. But I also thought, you know, this, this, I'm, I'm wasting whatever talents I have if I allow shyness. So why am I so shy? And then I began, you know, a lot of soul searching, but among the things that were keeping back, me back, I'll, I'll deal with the first one first. There were two. The first one was, I had a really severe lisp. Oh, and at age 38, oh, I, d- I don't know why I never tried to cure it before, but I didn't. But at age 38, I thought, you know, this shyness is paralyzing me. But part of the reason for my shyness was people whom I'd been close to told me that when they first met me, they assumed I was stupid because if your lisp is bad enough, uh, you don't look good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, so here I am, 38, paralyzingly shy, un- unwilling to go to, uh, to meetings. I was just doing everything I could to stay home, which was sort of wasting any, any talents that I had. So I decided I'm going to do something about this. I went to a speech therapist. The speech therapist said, and th- this being somewhere around maybe 1978, so we're talking a long time ago, the speech therapist said, by the time you're 38, we don't have any tools that we can use to help you. Uh, people don't get rid of their lisps by your age. And I thought, um, that's not what I wanted to hear. I'll go try another. Went to another speech therapist. Same story. I went to a third. Same story, except she said, nobody's been cured from this. I can't help you, but I'd be delighted to take your money. <laughs> I mean, she was, she was pleasant and joking, but uh, I mean, she was just being flat out honest. Um, I don't think I can help you, but I'd love to take your money. So that began nine months of no success of any sort. Uh, I'm, you clearly don't have a lisp, but if you did have one, you would know that it's incredibly hard to form the S because your muscles have completely atrophied. There's just, there's nothing to work with. I used to compare it to the idea of if I gave you, if I handed you a pencil and asked you to put it against your ear and said, now write a sonnet with it. With the pencil. Huh. Yeah, there's, there's just no muscles there. You can't do it. And so nine months of complete discouragement because I couldn't hear what I was trying for. I couldn't form my tongue. Um, but somewhere around nine months, um, I began to be able to hear it. And once I could hear it, I mean, I couldn't hear that I was lisping, and I couldn't hear what, what meant what a normal S sounded like. But the, the end of this long story is that, you know, by a year, I, I think I'm pretty much lisp-free. So it could be done, but boy, did it take a stubbornness that I'm not sure where it came from, but, but it worked. Probably from your dad. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I guess it did. Yeah. yeah. And then the second thing that was holding me back, and I, I worry that as as I tell this story, what I've said so far, it's probably not terribly relatable to everybody because I don't think many people these days have lisps. We know a speech therapists know an awful lot more what to do about a lisp. But it, it is it is relatable in that most of us have some kind of challenge in our lives. And I think that this is a great example of how if you decide you're going to overcome it and learn how to do it and find a way, then you do. Yeah, I'm personally just so 
pleased that I didn't give up because, boy, that meant, you know, in short order, a career in television. I, I became a syndicated television hostess. And, you know, the, the odds of getting that with a lisp are zero. Hmm. But the other thing that was holding me back, and I'm hoping that this is more relatable because I bet a lot of people who are listening or watching right now have what I'm about to describe, which is fear of failure. I want I'd always wanted to be I would always want to be in communications. And yet, you know, I never sent out uh, articles or tried to write books or anything because I was so sure of the complete devastation that would overcome me when I got the rejection letter or trying out for at the local television station for a show. Uh, I was thinking I I don't think I could stand the how awful it would feel to be told you're not good enough. And that honestly kept me from even trying. Uh, up until age 38, I hadn't tried for the things I really wanted to do. But everything changed when a friend of mine, uh, he, he, was, he had a, a most unusual situation. He had an IQ over 200. Wow. I knew him because he worked for me at my rice farm. And you know, what's a guy with an IQ of 200 doing being a tenant farmer? Well, he was his job as a tenant farmer was while he was accumulating uh, knowledge and files because he was going to write a great book. It was going to be a book that would, uh, what was called Life, an Owner's Manual, and he was going to put together all the wisdom that you know from from every culture and every period of history, and just he was going to make the world a better place with this book. But there came there came a very concrete moment when I realized he was never going to write that book. He was 68 at this point, and actually he died in his 90s and he never did write the book. But I realized I knew him well enough to figure out exactly why he wasn't going to write the book, even though he was telling himself that he was going to. He was afraid of failure. And you know, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, you're doing the one thing that guarantees failure, which is not to try. So I decided I would redefine failure. Failure isn't that you don't get this immediate thing that you want. Failure is that you didn't try and you didn't give it your all. And you're a success when you get that turned down because it means that you, maybe you took courses, maybe you went out of your way to meet people, maybe, you know, you're probably farther along the road to success just for having tried. And within about a year of overcoming my list, I had a syndicated television show, I had a syndicated newspaper column for uh, Capital News, and I had my own show in the Coast to Coast Radio Network, and this all came about because, you know, I got the rejection letters fast and furious, but I kept trying and uh, kept pitching, and woohoo, it worked. Yeah, and it, and it seems to me like what inspired you to keep going was that you realized you had something to contribute to the world, and that this was the thing that was in your way. Would you say that that's true, that that was behind the drive to do this? Very much. Uh, well, I felt there's a quote from Mother Teresa, which is the good that we can do, we must do. And if I'm capable of doing some good, then I must do that good, which, which is actually why I'm involved in combating human trafficking right now. Uh, and by the way, I, I look at my clock and I see we have five minutes yeah, left. Yeah, that's I, okay. I know I'm on the time too. So um, are you good with five more minutes? 
And we'll no, I want I want five hours with you. <laughs> we can always do this again, Missy. <laughs> I love talking to you. So we can always come oh. up with another theme. So I, oh. I'm totally happy to do that. But I would I would love to talk about human trafficking for a moment. Go for it. If anybody in our audience uh, is moved by what's got to be one of the most horrible atrocities in the world, I was just reading today that there are more people enslaved today than at any time in human history. And uh, the United Nations says more than 40 million. And something like 8 million of these are sex slaves. And imagine the, the typical age for a girl to be Oh, turned into a sex slave is between 12 and 14. Mm. And she's going to have to have sex with strangers like 10, 15 times a night. Yeah, that's awful. It's pretty shocking because in our world, like in North America, we don't see it because we don't have, well, at least on the surface, we don't have slavery here. I know that there are lots of people who are human trafficked here in the shadows, um, but we, we don't really appreciate what's happening out there. Yeah, the, the, it's it's a hidden crime because, yeah, since it's against the law, they're not going to broadcast it, but good Lord. So uh, what, what I'm involved in is we have something called Support Our Survivors, where we re- say, now remind me, I know that you're in Canada, but where? Yeah, I'm just outside of Toronto. Ah, just outside of yep. Toronto. I, I, I'm certain that there are anti-trafficking organizations in Toronto. For sure. So what we do is... We, we raise money typically, well, typically it's $12,000, but people have been donating in such a scale that the most recent one was 60000 And I'll, I'll, sh- I'll share how it works. Say you're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and uh, people have uh, want to do something about human trafficking. They donate like $5, but you have enough of them, and we got to $60,000. Wow. And we're giving a check to the North Star Institute, which helps rehabilitate or restore people who've been trafficked. And the the purpose of the money is first it's going to help them, it will they'll extend their reach, but it's also an excuse for radio, television, newspaper, and billboards and podcasters to write about North Star. So uh, if somebody is listening to us uh, who's near Toronto who would like mounds of publicity and probably some money that goes with it uh, the way to get hold of me or if you want to donate and five dollars is wonderful i'd be happy with one dollar uh text wtf and that huh. stands for win this fight but that's so deliberate it's huh. it's a marketing gimmick you'll I remember WTF. Uh, text wtf to five five three one two and you don't have to donate. I would love you if you would just sign up for the newsletter, which which is really interesting, says I modestly. But people tell me that they got a lot out of it. Uh, or, or you'll have an opportunity to donate. And I, I love it when people donate because it encourages me so much. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, well, and it's so it totally fits because here you're looking at these people who their freedom to make the most of their life has been taken away forcibly. And so this causes to give them that freedom back and also help them make the most of their lives in in whatever way we can. And and so it really fits with our, our whole theme. There goes your alarm. (laughs) I know you got to go. Well, I've loved every second of it. And um, 
Oh, I'm heartbroken that, that we can't talk longer because I've enjoyed it so much. Well, we I'm happy to do this again. So let's stay in touch. And I do want to hear about more of the work you're doing with WTF. <laughs> A quick story. Yeah, oh, I don't have time for the quick story, but I can't help myself. Um, the, the name of my organization initially was uh, the Anti-Trafficking Auction which is not memorable. A guy that I'd never heard of before called me up and said, you know, your name sucks. Why? And he said, I'm a neuroscience marketer and there's no call to action in that name. It's not memorable. Doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue. You need something that has some wrongness to it, like the initials are WTF, to make it memorable. And then you need a call to action, win this fight. Uh, and so I changed everything, and that's that's where WTF came from. And I, I better hang up or rather say goodbye because I don't want to be rude to the person I'm supposed to be talking with in a few minutes. All right, bye. That was Mitzi Perdue. I love her warmth and all those inspiring stories of embracing life's challenges and helping others do the same. To find out more or to donate to win this fight, text WTF to 51555 or go to witnessfight.org. And if you want to find out more about how you can learn hypnosis to help yourself and your loved ones take your career to the next level or about the rewarding career as a hypnotist, go to hypnosistrainingcanada.com and check out our free giveaways and other great information. I'm also happy to meet with you for a free consultation to help you get clear on your goals and see if Hypnosis Training Canada is a good fit for you. You can schedule your free consultation by calling 800-971-5774 or on our website at hypnosistrainingcanada.com. Join us next week when we will be speaking with my mentor, Scott McFall. He is a master at helping people get what they want and need. He will be sharing with you ways that you can become excellent at delivering results to people too. And if you are wanting to discover more about how hypnosis training can help you, go to hypnosistrainingcanada.com and schedule your free consultation. Remember to click the button to subscribe, share this podcast with a friend, and please leave us a review so you can help others benefit from the podcast too. Until next week. You've been listening to The Hypnosis Show with Robbie Spear Miller. Tune in next time to learn more about how you can change your life with hypnosis. And if you are interested in learning more about training opportunities, go to hypnosistrainingcanada.com and schedule a free consultation.